first MIT Artificial Intelligence Accelerator, and just glad to be here. Wonderful. And so why did you write this book? And, and this is a must-read book for anybody who's truly interested in AI. I appreciate that. So let's dive right in. I'm a fan of starting with analogies, and if I could pick up an electrical outlet behind me or a microwave in my kitchen, I'd bring it over. We each have one of those in our homes, um, but I can't. So I guess with another prop, here's a hammer, right? For most of us, we probably have one of these uh, things in our house. We're not electricians, but we use electricity. We're not engineers, but we can use microwaves. Many of us drive cars, but fewer can build them, and then fewer can both build and code the software. And all of us use hammers without being master craftspeople. We use it to hang pictures. We use it to pull out nails. We're incredibly effective with it through familiarity. Yet with the same instrument, we can be incredibly effective with it and do damage. AI itself is a lot like that in certain ways. So first, it's something we all must recognize because we do all have a role to play. Tech people should not just have the connotation of engineers. AI is an extremely powerful tool like the hammer but it has far broader reach and implications that we should each consider and evaluate carefully. It's a sharp instrument that shouldn't be callously wielded or just casually accepted by us, especially if it's in the wrong hands when it's used for intentionally intrusive or oppressive purposes. There are serious issues and there are issues for everyone. And there are steps we can take together to ensure that it's properly designed and implemented in both our pers uh, personal lives and professional pursuits. But despite everything at risk, despite all the conversations, despite it's the fact, you know, it's the reason you see the ads you see every day, the news you read, often the music you listen to, the fluctuation of our 401ks, for most of us, it just remains shrouded behind a cloud of misunderstanding and mystery, hidden behind these complex technical terms, you know, exasperated by extravagant depictions in science fiction. And we, for most of us, we say, that's not for me. I can't understand that. That's for those tech people. And I disagree. Much like electricity, cars, microwaves, and a hammer, it'll be a part of our lives in its current state right now will profoundly impact our interactions. So for myself, I thought about growing up in books that mattered something, mattered a lot to me. There are books like Sagan's Cosmos, Hawking's Universe in a Nutshell, Carol's Something Deeply Hitting, or Harari Sapiens, for instance. They're books that not only brought a topic to light, but it brought it to life. And this is a topic we need experience, familiarity, and understanding, and not just engineers. So in the book, I explain the realities of AI from a human-oriented perspective that's easy to comprehend through our collective history of innovation and technology, because the topic is truly multidisciplinary. You need to know a little bit about our own evolution, the development of language, the scales of numbers, both big and small, some basics of history, how a computer works, of course, also how your own brain works. Then let's discuss what is AI, because without context, it's the same circular conversation where we too often speak above, past, below, and through one another. And then after that, then let's talk about the big stuff, the global implications, the vulnerabilities already exposed, and the issues squarely on the table. And they're big issues. AI is already China's all-purpose tool to impose authoritarian influence around the world. Russia is weaponizing AI through its military systems and now infamous aggressive efforts to disrupt democracy by whatever disinformation means possible. And other nations like ours and our organizations, we too are awakening to new realities, but ultimately the paths we each elect to follow 
will echo loudly in most cases the foundations and moral imperatives upon which we are formed and what we value. But in order to talk about any of those aspects in any meaningful way, we need all the legs to the tripod. And ultimately, we learn best through storytelling. Storytelling about what makes us, us. And for me, the human experience is best told through the lens of AI now. So uh, let's talk about that. Well, what's the purpose of AI? You talk about that in your book. Yeah, the, the, oh, oh, the question to ask, what is AI? So let's start here. Uh, Einstein's often attributed to saying you don't really understand something unless you can explain it to your own grandmother. And I think that's true. But had Einstein known my own grandmother, I think he would have altered his words slightly and a more precise adage would be, your grandmother is likely the smartest person you'll ever encounter. So if she doesn't understand your explanation, it's sure no one else will either. And that's the issue is generally we can't talk about it. And why is that? I mentioned before we too often are speaking past one another, especially when we don't come up from a shared set of experiences and a shared background. And this is important in society today, frankly. The question then is, how do we address when this AI thing and the term we use, DevOps, technology, AI, automation, are broad to the point they're meaningless? And we come from a place of almost instinctual distrust on the topic. And by the way, trust is an interesting topic itself. From an academic perspective, there's not yet a shared or prevailing and clear and convincing notion of trust in general for humans. So we each have an uphill battle with those two points. But experience helps us have trust along the way. And that's where most organizations are failing, or people are, by not diving in. We need to read about it. We need to try it. We need to educate. We need to provide means for education. But we have a definition problem with AI. First, let's imagine you and I are in 1956 and we're at Dartmouth. By the way, this is you know, the story itself. And we said, hey, this computer thing, maybe one day or soon, it could do things that were once deemed as in the human domain, like human tasks. So they set the definition around this concept. C, right? So we're going to use an acronym here. AI is a concept. But there's an issue. If we take that definition, then surely a calculator was AI, Excel was AI, Tableau was AI, and you see how we disillusion ourselves and kick the can progressively down the road. Here's AI and what's special about it. Once upon a time, when we coded a machine, we had to do so explicitly. We had to give it every step of every direction, generally know the output, and if we missed it, it didn't work. It was constrained. But because of the rise of data, which is all around us, and the fact that we now memorialize everything we do digitally in all of our interactions, some advancements in computers, processing in particular, and some cool advancements in math, we can now write code that discovers patterns without explicit direction. That's it. It's that simple. We don't have to sit back and hard code into the machine the essence of something or an explicit output. And cats are all over the internet. So here's my acronym that I think is meaningful for each of us and in our workplaces. Uh, thanks to the military, of course, acronyms. Uh, cat. Concept is AI. This idea of a machine doing something deemed the human domain. When we say machine learning, along with some other things. It is the application where something, a machine, can learn through the presentation of data, which is akin to experience for us. And then lastly, to close out the, the, the cat reference, T, 
for technique. And that's usually neural networks and deep learning. And that's largely driving the advancements today. And when you remember all of these pieces, what we're really talking about is using precise language, understanding it. And I think that helps each of us have at least a dialogue at the start. So what's the biggest misperceptions about <laughs> AI? Because I think everybody looks at all the science, mm -hmm. science fiction stuff and how they're taking over the world. And just like uh, when I was, I guess, your age, War Games came out. Of course. With, uh, with Matthew Broderick. So what, what are the misperceptions? It's the ones we tend to bring into the AI conversation. And it's the first of these is the assumption that AI is unavoidably destined sooner or later to develop its own consciousness and its own autonomous evil intent. And for that idea, we do have, we can thank science fiction, the entertainment industry, and make no mistake, I'm an ardent fan, both on screen and in the books. The genre has given us fine works of imagination, insight, and art. And many of those writers and filmmakers are extremely knowledgeable and conscientiously concerned about our future. And they've proven themselves as true visionaries and we're better off. They do ignite our imaginations. But when it comes to their scientific portrayals of AI, our most popular authors and screenwriters have too often generated uh, an array of exotic fears by focusing our attention on distant dystopian possibilities rather than really the present day realities. Our workforces are thinking of robots. It's this notion that is not foundationally based that give us the idea that a computer's intelligence is aligned with consciousness and then frightens us by portraying future worlds in which the AI isn't only conscious somehow, but now intent and self-motivated even to overtake and destroy us, to kill us, to take our jobs, right? And that's because they want to create drama. There has to be conflict and humans in these stories are always overwhelmed. Um, but what they've done really is turned our underlying fears and suspicions into deep-seated and bleak expectations rather than present-day realities of, of how machine learning works today. I, there was a great show on, and I can't remember its name, but it was AI was actually driving the show every single week uh, where they were solving crimes, and but it was basically thwarting different government entities from doing evil things. And so AI is very much like guns or dynamite or nuclear fission. It can be really good uh, or it could end up being really bad, right? So right now, I think some of the, a lot of us are concerned with is what's the role AI will play in this year's election and how will it affect elections and what should be our concern about it? Um, I mean, Artificial intelligence, the same thing that, you know, promotes search algorithms, right? So, so when I search something, AI is driving me towards a certain direction, right? And that's surrounded all around us and everything that we do. For myself, because of the, 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 the groups I'm in and the things I care about, I think the whole world is talking about artificial intelligence when I hop on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. I just think... Everyone is, because that's all I'm exposed to. Right. So the first is this idea of, are we exposed to information that we need, or are we living in our own echo chambers? Because the reason these machine learning applications work the way they do from the company is, is they want more click-through, they want more ads, so they're going to give you what you want to hear. So the first is, what kind of information are we receiving? The second is, of course, campaigns are going to use it 
to identify certain people, to reach out. We've seen this play out um, certainly just like anything else, marketing in general. And we should ask questions about the type of data that's being collected. And then as for the influence in, in, in elections, we're, I'm sure we'll talk about deep fakes here at some point on this call and fake news and the like, because uh, computer generated content is a concern. So when we think about uh, fake news or something to that effect, it's just AI right now writing these things. If most people aren't gonna pay close enough attention to anything beyond a headline or the difference between a semicolon and comma, then AI generated news is probably gonna work. And then lastly, to the point in which any of this materially affects outcomes, that's not my decision to make, that's not my call, but it is quite clear from other nations, public, publicly declared that people will engage to disrupt democracy through disinformation and AI empowers that. So I think, I think it's something we have to be cognizant of, but we need a sophisticated foundation to communicate about it like everyday people. Is the government worried about this day to day? Because, you know, a few years ago, a lot of that false information led a guy walking into a pizzeria with an AK-47 expecting Hillary to be uh, selling girls across the world. I, I think just recently, as of yesterday, there was an announcement that uh, the National Science Foundation is uh, exercising quite a bit of money in the billions against AI explainability and robustness. This is a common topic that's spoken about and research from DARPA to the National Science Foundation and the like. So I'm inspired by that work. It's making sure that we as citizens are always demanding it and demanding transparency about the technology. By the way, the show was, and someone brought it up, Person of Interest. I watched every single oh, okay. episode of Person of Interest. I think it's a very interesting show and very thought-provoking. What impact is AI having on the cure for COVID? Because I kind of think AI is probably shortening the process here by years. Of course, of course. There isn't a single field that can't be um, augmented with the applications of machine learning and the algorithms that exist today. Many of these things, the intent is to discover patterns that we couldn't otherwise see. Uh, the way that it's aiding today is there's a lot going on when it comes to using AI for contact tracing and discovering patterns of where people move and the like. Sometimes that's through your Bluetooth and stuff like that. Um, in addition to that, modeling and simulation. Computers are good at what humans are not and humans are good at what computers aren't. So when they do all the modeling and simulation for the vaccines, they don't necessarily have to do that in the real world, but they can do that digitally and then have all these millions and millions of iterations so we can fast track the way to the cure. And that's how machine learning works with uh, COVID and many diseases and many uh, you know, material sciences. Because uh, I kind of think if we didn't have AI and the internet, um, the whole economy would collapse. And instead of talking about you know, maybe around the world a million people dying, you'd be talking about what they experienced back in the early part of the last century with the Spanish flu, where you might have 30 to 50 million deaths here. Or we'd also be killing each other because we'd be quarantined with nothing to binge watch on TV. Uh, what companies are leading AI development and how will they be affected day to day? Of course, it's the, it's the, it's the big five, right? It's Google, it's Amazon, 
It's uh, the ones that you would expect, Apple and then Facebook and the like. But there are a number of smaller companies also doing some very cool things because the way that commercial industry has looked at the development of AI is they have done so publicly out of a moral obligation to people to share this type of technology. Now, in most cases, that's the right thing to do. So it's all about being measured by application in the digital age. Some of the most successful companies aren't the ones that come up with new math. They just have the right application. So for those thinking about how to involve, how to put machine learning into your everyday business, don't make this too hard. Don't search for some unique solution or overpay because as I mentioned, the R&D and commercial AI world has held that belief as it's a do right to publicly develop it. It's likely your solution probably already exists on some GitHub repository out there as we speak. And what it's all about in business right now is applying the science in a way that nobody else saw. Is IBM still playing a big role? Of course. Uh, um, yeah, I, I think of, big five. yeah, I always think of, yeah, I just didn't go through them all. IBM is a, definitely a player and absolute, you know, they're, they're a national asset, of course. I think of each of the big companies. And when I think about them, I think about what is their kind of core competency? Nobody does better big compute, big warehousing than IBM. And then when you think about Oracle, nobody does better than on-premise. When you think about Google, nobody does better of machine learning in the cloud. When you think about Amazon, nobody does better than hosting. So they're all very complementary in their core ways. Um, and, and of course, each of those requires advancements in artificial intelligence. You know, in the biopharmaceutical uh, world, uh, to take a drug to market is about a billion dollars now. Mm. So when you're developing an AI application, how long, man hours, numbers of people, can you give us a sense of what it really takes to go even develop something like language learning? Uh, a lot of people just pander around and say, data's all that matters, right? Data matters, garbage in, garbage out. I, it's true, there's a reason people say it, data matters. So when you're scoping out a machine learning project, first piece, start small. Solve what is seemingly a toy problem at low cost, because what you wanna do is enter into this nice virtuous cycle where you deploy a machine learning application in your business, it changes your business, so you're asking yourself a new question in some domain, and then, then by deduction, you're measuring new data, and then you keep going through that cycle. So costs. Each project is a little bit different. At the end of the day, this is all about people. If your company isn't pushing people towards education and providing them contemporary means to do so because the barriers to entry are low, then you probably want to reevaluate it. Here's the one piece of advice though, when I mentioned data, it is what matters. It's what makes the difference. Every single time I've budgeted out an AI project, the data engineering and curation aspect ends up being well over 50% of the entire budget. And it always takes you by surprise. So just understand that upfront, it's a lot of like paying the piggy bank for having a lot of, uh, a lot of dues over time that end up paying off in the long run. So we're talking about millions of dollars here to even develop something simple? No, I think you're talking about the cost of somebody's salary. 
And I would say what we want to tap into is the citizen coder. Have we asked people who are next to us, are you a Bitcoin miner at home? Sometimes we don't even realize the, the latent talent we have in our organizations because it's new and we don't always value it right away and we haven't realized that. So first I would ask, but second, it just takes one or two people. So whatever the cost of their salary is, you can make happen. Okay, so we have a question here. How do Google and Microsoft compare in terms of AI, ML cloud, API, and functionality? Whew, that's a big question. It depends on, uh, it depends on how you're asking that question. Um, they compare in very different ways and they have different businesses. I'll say that machine learning in the cloud done by Google, Google Cloud Platform, it really is second to none when it comes to the tool suites that are available there. At the same time, I will absolutely celebrate all day long Microsoft's culture and some things they're doing with HoloLens are very cool. So the application of AI, um, but they all communicate with each other. It's just, you know, you pick per, your poison per se of which company you're gonna go with. And many people have multiple clouds, they have multiple partners, but between the companies, they build latency into that platforms between them. So they drive you towards one of the cloud uh, providers. So they just offer different things, but machine learning in the cloud is incredibly impressive by GCP. Um, and Microsoft Azure is great too. And uh, of course, Watson's work is, you know, is, is steadily moving fast as it always has. Uh, can human conscious be programmed, especially since we aren't totally sure how that works? You talk about that in the book. I do. And perhaps for those who look back upon these times in this, uh, this podcast, they'll say how wrong I was, but no. Like if you're afraid of AI, go talk to your Google Home and Alexa for a couple minutes and see how that pans out, right? And so let's talk just for a second about consciousness. In the history of humanity, we have never looked at something that was alive, organic compounds, where we didn't presume consciousness before these words, intelligence and learning. So consciousness always came first in the stack. Then something could be intelligent, which we'll define as doing something for a purpose and learning, which is changing over time with the presentation of new data. We have data all around us. But in the digital age, that has changed. Things don't require consciousness to have intelligent capabilities and then furthermore to learn. So we should move consciousness to the bottom of the stack. And while this might sound pedantic, I think it really helps us have some objective conversations about the topic itself. So if I was talking about something intelligent in our home, surely a thermostat that can change the temperature has one unit of intelligence. It's doing something for a purpose, I guess. And then for my home, I have a nest in it. It changes over time and knows I like my house at 67 degrees when I'm home, but knows when I'm not home. So it's being presented new data and learning. So I could say it's intelligent and can learn, but I'm not afraid of that nest ever having consciousness. Uh, people have debated consciousness since, you know, the dawn of language. It's, it's, the, it's the ultimate human existential question. What makes us special? What makes us conscious? For now, though, let's think about these inorganic, you know, machines that can do things without needing consciousness. Interesting. 
Uh, what? I like this. I thought this was interesting. And I never really thought about it because really AI goes back like a thousand years. I mean, it's been a thousand years in the making. It wasn't an overnight type of thing. But you talk about the role of board games play in developing mm -hmm. AI. So mm -hmm. how, how did board games play this role? I'm happy to. We all love competitive games. From the time we're toddlers, games entertain, occupy, and amuse us. They also teach us many of the fundamental skills by which society measures us. So when we're young, they ripen our minds. They train us to analyze and react decisively to changing situations and information. They sharpen our ability to focus and achieve goals. They provide a ready means of measuring ourselves against others by assessing weaknesses and developing strengths. We learn to operate within these uh, boundaries of established rules but we're also able to practice stretching those rules strategically to our best advantage. As we grow older, they continue to entertain and challenge us while also keeping us mentally and socially and physically fit. But most importantly, in all those contexts, they're relatively cost-free for humans. For most of us, we don't earn our income and livelihoods from playing games. So the risks of recreational competition are small and they're far outweighed by by the benefits we have. And games come and go, but those that last long for us in society over decades and centuries reflect much about the priorities and values of the cultures that continue to play them. Invariably, the games that survive from generation to generation teach and require skills that cultures behind them deem relevant and worthy. So they mean something to us. And as they survive through the ages, the styles and strategies then change and they reflect also the growth of culture. And some of those board games showcase the most unique strengths of hu the human mind, including our abilities to analyze, anticipate, and strategize. So games like chess, games like the game of Go, and currently for our societies and for our children, games like StarCraft and Dota, this is where we develop AI because it's the best of what we have. And most advancements have been taken place when it comes to artificial intelligence in the world of games. And most recently, as of just yesterday, we saw that uh, an artificial intelligence beat a fighter pilot in a, in a dogfight, another version of a game, right? So we keep moving forward with these, and that's why games have a significant role to play, and that's why we choose to develop AI on them. Well, I'm sure my kids will be disappointed to know that Pretty Pretty Princess didn't have a role in uh, cracking AI. Um, you write about the need for strong security around the cloud computers that hold the data that AI feeds off. Is it possible to keep it totally secure? And what's your biggest concern? I think we're always trying to measure risk, risk management framework, the, the way we've always done things. And we have two sides of risk that we must pay attention to, because if the central thesis and premise is data wins, then you want to keep that safe. Or if the central premise is because of this interconnected world, people wish to do me harm who might, you know, from the periphery be able to do me harm like a hack from a nation state into a company that works with, you know, the federal government or ICE or something. Then we're all much more connected than we used to be. So we have a digital concern and we have a physical concern too. That hasn't disappeared. To a certain degree, when we think about the way that we digitally secure our systems, we have three categories. We have this data at rest idea, which has traditional you know, security protocols and standard encryption and all that and kerneling. 
And we're pretty sure about that one. We're like, I know that's how that works. You can brute force attack in and figure out your way in, but for the most part, we're safe. Then we have data in transit and typical encryption and keys and all of that jazz and measuring key velocities and the like. And we kind of get that. Quantum concerns us because it can just tunnel in and overpower standard encryption. So that could be a concern. But the new rise of something I think about quite often is this idea of data in compute. When we take our data and we send it to these machines that are capable of processing to make artificial intelligence algorithms, how do we keep that safe? How do we keep that private? How do we keep that secure without exposing that stuff? Data and computes a new, a new frame of reference. And then ultimately at the end of the day, we still have a physical security problem. And that's what a lot of these cloud providers and regional um, cloud centers think about quite often. Uh, another issue that's a big concern, and you touched on just now with your answer to individuals, but it's probably looked at as valuable tool for governments, especially mm -hmm. in China, is the whole privacy issue. Mm -hmm. uh, I think people are afraid of, uh, I guess it's convolutional neural networks, uh, mystifying people for the law enforcement. And uh, what can, if anything, should individuals do to protect themselves since we've worked with the government? What are the positive aspects, since you've worked with the government, what are the positive aspects that government has and could continue to use it for? Let's not throw out, you know, to use an overwrought term, perhaps, the baby with the bathwater. Let's, let's not change the conversation at hand. The way we as society value human dignity, especially in the West, the way we value privacy, these still largely hold when it comes to applications of artificial intelligence, or for instance, the rise of facial recognition. Here's the difference. In America, we can say no. Or in America, when somebody makes a mistake with AI, like Amazon making mistakes in hiring actions most recently, we held them to account. They might have made a mistake, but there is a conversation. In places like China, there is no conversation. It is only surveillance. There is no decision making. Imagine just, just for one moment on a thought experiment when we talk about privacy for us. We each have, on my phone, I probably have Uber Eats, Postmates, Snapchat, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. I can choose all sorts of things. I can go to different applications. And I can use different internets. And I can use WhatsApp, perhaps, or Signal to communicate. In China, that doesn't happen. They sit on one chat platform. One platform where it's the same platform where you get a dog sitter to where you have your cash, to how you use your credit, to how you order food, to how you talk to your friends. So imagine the immense amount of data that's collected and how they can develop machine learning off of that for surveillance purposes. The first thing we each need to do as citizens of America is to first read some data agreements a little more closely when we just click yes out of our machines. You know, we, we just keep giving it away because apparently it holds no, no value, uh, but now we're realizing my data does matter. And then we have to make sure that we're conversant on it. And when people use it for the wrong ways, or intentionally or unintentionally, you, you know, oppressive purposes, we bring that up because, you know, the, the only thing I've learned is 
democracy takes its direction from the voice of its people. Our best leadership takes the needs uh, and, and directions from the needs of its ranks. So if we think like that, we would say, I want to be more informed on this data thing nowadays, especially for my kids who might not also understand that either. So how concerned are you about risk to infrastructure systems like the grid, water, telecommunications from AI, ML, attacks? In fact, a, a Chinese general wrote a book, maybe in the last 10 years, that the uh, U.S. could be brought to its knees within a week uh, by just being able to uh, use uh, uh, the Internet to go and take down all these systems. I think people really worry about that. So We're certainly what's reliant. What's concerns, yeah. We're certainly reliant. What I'm, what I'm concerned most about is when we don't have meaningful human oversight on machine learning applications, i.e. they keep discovering patterns, and then we let them make decisions based off those patterns, and then everything's interconnected. And we saw this play out. Early machine learning applications and algorithms that, albeit it wasn't necessarily quite out of its last winter, it wasn't quite like it is now, but we can blame a lot of the stock market crash on those actions, right? So these tumbling effects that can happen. So what I would say is that in the age when machine learning is of concern, we need to take a step back and say, are we hardened? Are we thinking about redundancies? Because since so much is interconnected and we understand how AI works, we can see very quickly how this could create this circular kind of spiraling effect out of control. So let's start, let's start thinking through that problem right now. And I don't really concern myself with that every day. And I, I think that's a little far-fetched, but it's something we should certainly have to pay attention to in like various sectors. Sectors are very interconnected. So we can't just turn off Russia's lights for them after they've interfered with our election, unfortunately. Unfortunately, I don't think that's a that's that's in the cards. Oh, damn, all those movies I watch where it happens, it's just not going to happen. How can AI help uh, bridge intelligence gap for neurodiversity? In the Ooh. neurodiversity community. I really, I really like this. Um, let's talk about bias for a second. This is a topic I really care about. Machine learning applications are designed to analyze data and formulate predictions without guidance from us. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily safe from the effects of or influence of our own human biases. It's not. Our biases will always be reflected in our data. And when they are, it stands to reason that any analysis strategy or prediction based off that data will be biased as well. And worse, if decisions are made or actions are taken based on bias analysis, then the underlying ones will, of course, perpetuate and possibly ingrain historical or cultural inequities even deeper into our lives. What's important now is that we bridge the digital divide so that the data being collected from companies, from perhaps uh, local courthouses, I mean, machine learning suggests sentencing right now in certain areas. We need to make sure that that's representative of those who might not be represented on the internet. This is deeply, deeply concerning because if it, it's only as good as the data it's trained on when we talk about bias. So if it's only biased to people who, who you know, don't look like another group or don't look like the minority community, then of course they're not going to be treated fairly 
afterwards. So what we want to do is bridge that digital divide, help with digital literacy, because this is deeply, deeply concerning. And I think it's an important thing that we can pay attention to now to make sure that the worldview of any algorithm we put into action is fair based on you know, its scope of reach. For instance, I would not only want to have Alexa that's in each of our homes trained only on you know, people from Alabama and alternatively, not only people from California, right? We want a good representation uh, of the data set itself. Also, when you deploy AI, it's really like looking in the mirror. So a lot of people are afraid and say, wow, look at the biases that it exposed. Apparently, I only hire older white gentlemen in my company. Well, it's also a good thing because then we just learn something about ourselves and we can change. So I think there's a positive spin on how we use machine learning to expose biases. So I think this is interesting. You mentioned something and one of the listeners asked this question. Please ex expand on how AI is currently used in prison sentencing. And I was going to add, up, add on to that. What are things that we're surprised that AI is making the decisions on now? So those two things. So we'll look at... Um, We'll, we'll look at AI. So what ends up happening is called a you know, criminal prison sentencing AI, which is a concern that they'll take past defendant data to estimate whether someone is likely for recidivism, right? And unfortunately, that AI is getting it wrong. And MIT really like brought this to light um, over the course of the past year. You can find an article in MIT Tech Review and what's ultimately it's saying is this person is likely to commit a crime again in the future. By the way, it only had a certain data set. So of course it's going to predict that that person's likely to going to commit another crime in the future. And then it suggests harsher sentencing. And I think this is something really, really um, disconcerting that we have to pay attention to happening in society by just willy nilly saying, yeah, that, that technology seems to be the right answer for that problem. It absolutely is not. And then Mark, your second question to that. Uh, my second question was, uh, that's totally surprised me when you mentioned that mm. AI is making this. Are there other decisions AI is making oh, yeah. that would surprise us? <laughs> I, I think it's surprising just how much, in my personal opinion, that it's ruined the game of baseball. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, nowadays when you watch a baseball game and you see eight guys lined up on the third baseline. Yeah, right. And, they, and they've already decided that, you know, of course this pitcher is going to throw to this certain batter, or, uh, you know, a right-handed batter, a high-hanging curve, and, and inevitably he's going to hit it right down the third baseline. So AI drives most of baseball right now. Mm. Uh, and, and so that one's really surprising. Here's the question we should ask ourselves. At what point do we wake up to the realities of AI. And I had mentioned, it defines a lot of the stock market trends uh, and makes its decisions. It picks a lot of your music if you're on Spotify. AI um, ha, you know, generates art on its own now. It generates language on its own now. It has changed baseball now. Uh, you see it in the legal system now. At what point do we wake up and say, we need to pay attention to this thing? 
because in other nations they did wake up with their equivalent Sputnik moments. I think it's time we have our own Sputnik moment on artificial intelligence as opposed to something that rocks us to our core or brings us to our knees because of the technology. Is there any organization or global group that has oversight on matters such as bias to ensure there's mm. fairness and that bias doesn't get further baked in? There's some incredible groups around the world where many nations are involved in. I wouldn't call them authoritative bodies, although I think we're moving towards that direction when you see uh, you know, GDPR in the European Union and how they you know, measure data and what's allowed to be collected and, and the like. There are a number of international organizations deeply, deeply committed to existential risk, Oxford, future of humanity, future of life. Um, and I do wanna celebrate also a number of the ethics boards in America. Google's ethics board with their principles and policies, Microsoft's with their principles and policies right now. So people are paying attention to this. Um, at what point, how do we make it enforceable or something that you could legislate for? Uh, is a tough question. And we'll, I think we still are so nascent that we have to work through that as, as, as a society as a whole. Yeah, for sure. And this is just the beginning of the conversation. And I'm with you about baseball after watching, <laughs> you know, reading Moneyball and so forth. Uh -huh. when, you, when, you, when this COVID goes away next year, come down to Philly and we'll watch the game together. Or I'll I'm about that. And watch the Red Sox. How does AI help with strategy? And can you provide examples of where it has made a significant difference? Because uh, one that I liked you mentioned was regarding diabetes, since I'm a diabetic. Yeah, I think what we have to think about AI is it illuminates patterns otherwise hidden to us as humans. So what it ends up doing is it provides these strategic insights that you wouldn't otherwise have realized. And a lot of people think AI is gonna replace the bottom of the workforce or the proverbial bottom. Automation is gonna do that. Artificial intelligence just looks through patterns in our data and then we as humans sit back and say, does that pattern make sense? Should I change my strategy in business? Am I doing something you know, I didn't realize? They're predictions. So where you actually start a good AI problem for those thinking about this in their organizations you want to have three criteria to have it make these strategic insights. The first, high volumes of data where you have access to, you know, your hundreds and thousands of Excel files and the like. High velocity decisions that require machine speed and things that you are already highly, highly accurate on, like aspects of business you can't miss and you have to get right. So what you end up doing is you end up putting AI with your highest order workers, the subject matter experts. But a lot of people just say, oh, AI can replace, you know, the telephone operator somewhere. That, and, and inevitably then the, then the project doesn't mean anything to people. And then from the strategic perspective, we talked about games. There is no human on the planet who will ever win chess again against a computer. There is no human on the planet that will ever win in the game of Go against a computer. There's no human on the planet that's gonna win in StarCraft anymore, or Dota, which are the games that are, are, are the new generation plays, their version of chess and Go, and in a lot of ways, much more complex for what it's worth, you know, these real-time strategy games. 
And that's where all the advancements are taking place in strategy games right now. Uh, and there's a lot of cool news on that front. Do you have a view that AI can be considered or should be considered an inventor for an invention? I think this is a really interesting question. And, uh, and, and whoever asks, that's, a, that's just such a great question. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't think that we should give it necessarily, you know, its own autonomy. We, sh we shouldn't be identifying it as something that has rights just yet. I mean, these are just things that are specific in a singular domain. But what happens when AI generates its own book? And then someone says, well, I'm the one who clicked the button to make the book. Do I own that? Or does the AI own that? Or does the developer who made the AI own that? Or does the company who owns that algorithm own that? These are tough questions. What I would highlight is this is all new with new. And I think when it comes to the business of artificial intelligence, we need to quit trying to stick square pegs and round holes. And we need to start carving out some new square pegs and do the work we need to do. Uh, how, le how is legislation keeping up with AI, uh, like say copyright? AI, uh, if AI was trained on copyrighted images and creates fake faces, what rights original copyright mm. holders have? This is an incredibly, this is a great question. Uh, what we're doing right now is we're floating this line of sort of freedom of speech, privacy, and anonymity. There are three things and they overlap, but they don't always guarantee one another. So the question is, is how do we pay close enough attention to ensure that when it creates this fake stuff, we maybe have a moniker that says, this has been deemed as computer generated content. It's a really difficult thing to do. Now, Adobe just recently released a new uh, add-in. I think just as of this week, it's even hard to keep up with all the AI news in the world that starts to identify if um, any computer-generated content has changed an image that you as a human might not notice. Um, there's a significant number of, of, of legislative bodies on this. Uh, just recently, the National Security Commission on AI was stood up uh, this past year, and they're on to their second report right now that does focus on topics like this. Could you talk, uh, could you talk to what we've learned from early applications of IBM's Watson? For example, mm -hmm. as an application, the cancer therapy did not quite pan out the way it was supposed to. The problem they have run into seems to be granularity, accuracy, and relevance of data. How do you weigh inputs? Do you have a solution to this conundrum? Watson seems to have retreated to more mundane and less creative applications at this point. This is a, this is a great question. Um, so the question at hand that we need to think about is when we deploy AI, we need to compare it to the human. So a lot of the time what's going on is we're really afraid of autonomous vehicles. We say absolutely not, but it's driven tens and millions and hundreds of millions of miles at this point with far less accidents than we have every single day. So my first question when we talk about its application in cancer therapy, what I wanna do is I wanna say, well, how accurate were the doctors to begin with in identifying this? As of recently, deep fakes, which, which we're concerned about with fake news and generating fake content and, and you know, creating fake images. 
Well, that's the same technology that's the leading technology in, in detecting breast cancer right now. Ultimately, the question is, how do we ask of an AI why it made that choice when we can't see you know, under the hood uh, quite the way we understand it? So there's a number of, of efforts on this topic of AI explainability. And I don't know if I like that word very much because it anthropomorphizes how we think an AI might explain itself to us, uh, which relates to this question. Um, how do we weigh and ask of what did you see artificial intelligence to make you, you know, detect breast cancer or blow it off? And here's, here's my answer, because this is ultimately still a human endeavor. Just yesterday, there was released news that I, I believe it's the National Science Foundation or one of those organizations is putting significant money against having AI explain itself to us. And Mark, you're on a chair right now, right? Yes, I am. If we sat around and I asked you, how do you know that's a chair, Mark? Well, I guess because I grew up learning what a chair was. Mm -hmm. And I look at it and says it has four legs or it could have three legs. Right. And I can sit down on it. Exactly. You're like, after these, you're about 35, right? Yeah. Let's say 35. Yeah. yeah, of course. So, so after this amount of time, you'd say, well, after these 35 years of life, I'm pretty sure I know what a chair is. Artificial mm -hmm. intelligence would tell us the exact same thing. It would say, well, based on the data you provided me, human, this is the pattern I discovered. And it goes back to what is the data we're providing it? And that's the best question at hand. Um, so back to the point, how do you weigh those inputs? You know, you always end up going back to saying, did we ever have the right data? And the reason you see sometimes people retreat or they give up on the problem is that, you know, they're just trying to eke out a little more performance instead of going back and asking a different question and collecting different data. So here's a, a concern of mine, and, I, and we have a time for just a couple more questions as I'm asking. What is the role generative adversarial networks play in fake news? Because this is something mm -hmm. that greatly concerns me as the leader of the free world seems to make stuff up as he goes along or he passes on this stuff to the rest of us. I don't mind about the disagreements about policy or anything, but the sure. whole idea of pay, uh, passing on information that's just not accurate that concerns me a great deal. And people act on it just like they have pitchforks and, and torches. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a, there's a certain duality to all of this technology. And that's this. And it most shows itself through generative adversarial networks uh, as a good showcase for it. But every, every aspect of machine learning, there's a natural duality to it. So this, this type of technique that artificial intelligence researchers have developed and and, 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 and implemented really helps us enhance images. It trains medical algorithms. It does all sorts of good stuff, detects cancer like we just mentioned, but it also is the same technique that makes doctored videos or can it make forged clips and the like. But basically at a simplest level for people on the line, it's two neural networks that are trying to trick each other uh, and they bake off against one another and then you get a, a better output at the end, something that looks more real. And you can see how each algorithm, when it tries to trick itself or trick the other one, it's actually making something that looks more real to us. 
So it can create this type of, uh, you know, fake content or computer generated content. And I think that's what we have to just think about. Now, there's not much of a way as we see it right now to necessarily detect computer generated content. The question at hand and the thing that we just have to think about is that it should be unacceptable that we create false, like that we tell untruths on any side and under any circumstance. The evisceration of truth in some ways is being led by the advancements of these technologies. So we have to take a step back and say, how do we combat the onset of computer generated content? Because I bet just today, I have read something that's computer generated content. You yourself have probably read something that's computer generated content. We need to ask, is that right or is that wrong? Um, and I don't think there's enough conversation on the topic. So one of the uh, questions I have for you is you mentioned in, in, there's a hundred industries that have benefited by AI. Mm -hmm. You list them in your book. Which ones does AI have the biggest impact and which ones uh, probably will have minimal? I think I lost you a little bit, Mark, but I think I know your question. Which ones it really won't okay. make a lot of difference. Okay. okay. Um, first, I don't think that there is any sector that it won't make a difference in. If you do personnel management and HR, machine learning can help with that. If you look at Excel files, machine learning can help with that. If you're trying to compete against a, another business trying to take market share from you, machine learning can help with that. So first, there isn't a single aspect we have to look at it smartly and say, what are the underlying fields? Maybe I'm in agriculture, for instance, but I still schedule people. We'll use this as like a thought experiment. I schedule people, but I work in the agriculture industry. Well, scheduling, dynamic scheduling, which is an AI problem and can be solved by AI, is in every single sector. The dental clinics, it's in you know, medical sales, everything. So the first answer is I do not believe in the purposes that I put all of those industries uh, down in the, in, in the book itself was to really showcase that you can see an application of machine learning in your everyday business, let alone your personal life. So just finding the right spot is what we can all do. So here's the last question for you. And by the way, I wanna thank the audience who's asked tremendous questions. We have a lot of bright people uh, that we're listening today. And we always do have a lot of bright people that really help with great questions. What are the cool stuff AI will do over the next 10 years? Oh, the first thing that people should go check out if you have some time today or over the weekend is look up OpenAI GPT. And it is a language generator in which you provide it prompts or you ask it a question and it will answer back with natural language. It doesn't know what it's saying, but it's predicting the next most likely word that would make an interesting sentence. I find it very fun to work with because when I'm trying to get inspiration for, for writing fiction or something like that, it's very fun to tool around with. But there's another development of it coming out called GPT-3 that's released just to the academic communities right now, but then we'll will be released to the public because the company has made a phased release approach because 
of truthfully the danger of misuse for it, creating that fake content. So um, you can go work with it with GPT-2 and put in a prompt and, and see what comes out. But my, the most exciting advancements are going to be natural language so that all of the cool research and development stuff we can use in our everyday lives as people. We have all the science fiction. The current state of machine learning, before we get to these ideas of consciousness and artificial general intelligence, will profoundly impact our interactions and alter society for quite some time to come, for you know, a long time to come. In my mind, when there's a fire at the door, I don't worry about the lightning in the distance necessarily. And I think that's what's happening right now. And there's some really cool stuff in natural language. It's gonna come back in vogue when we're all not so bothered by our Alexas and series any longer. Well, Mike, I thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I mean, you're a very smart guy. Could you show your book one more time to people? Yeah, very exciting. If you'd like to pick it up, it's here. I'm very fortunate to have Eric Schmidt, Muhammad Yunus, who Nobel Peace Prize winner, and a number of others, Adam Grant, share their uh, endorsements and reviews on it. And we're and here in Philly, we're big Adam Grant fans and love his of course originals and so just forth. wonderful, wonderful man. Yep. Well, enjoy your weekend. Thank you, everybody, for signing on, and we'll look forward to seeing you at the next uh, show. Have a great weekend. Take care. Take care. Thank you.